Okay, how's it all going? Are you better? Sort of? Okay, good. Yeah? Oh, it didn't even occur to me. I don't think it occurred to me. Um, I think I didn't compare them. Do you remember what the difference is? It just says Yeah, and what I meant was the Daniel in here, but um, I guess it's a crossover. No, it's the, um, I wasn't thinking that, but now that you've asked, let me check the 17th century book. Um, and. In the other book, yeah. So, yeah, because he's mainly 16th century, writing in the 16th century. Um, yeah, so, okay, two or three pages. How bad is that? Let's do that. Um, I'm assuming that the 17th century stuff isn't um, from Delia, because he wrote all that in the 16th century. That's his uh, sonnet sequence. Um, so, yeah. Okay, we were going to talk a little bit more about um, Astrophel and Stella. Uh, are you guys freaking out about papers? Yes, you are? Good. So Astrophel and Stella, um, what are you freaking out about? When you nod, what are you nodding at? Um, well, you came and talked to me. Yeah. But you're still freaking out. Um, 16th and 17th century poetry, um, the stuff we're doing in the course. Um, okay, so look, I really, really, really don't give paper topics. I hate giving paper topics um, because then people think that it's like a test question. Like um, now I have to tell him, I have to show that I've done the reading and understood what he wants me to say. Um, and I don't particularly want you to say any, well, I don't particularly want you to say anything, I want you to say something. There's some version of anything, something, nothing, and everything that you should be doing and shouldn't be doing. Um, so basically, look, we've, we've spent a lot of time doing close readings of poems, just figuring out what's going on in various poems that we're reading. That's a really good thing to do in a paper, um, is just do a close reading. What it would mean to do a close reading is um, to discover something as you think about a poem, realize that um, there was stuff you didn't get at first, and then assume that your reader will be in the same position. That is, that when your reader reads what you have to say about the poem, um, then there'll be things that will occur to me, will occur to whoever's reading your paper, that wouldn't occur to them um, without your having um, contributed the work that you contribute to thinking through what's going on in the poem. Um, now, you can also do, so I'm always for um, close readings of single poems. I always think that's a good idea. That doesn't mean a plot summary. That means um, thinking about how, not only what the poem means, but how it means it, how it goes about doing what it is that it's doing. Um, some of the stuff that we talked about, um, you know, we talked about stuff like rhyme and meter and, and, um, and uh, form as ways that poems go about, go about meaning what they mean. So it's not only what they mean, it's how they mean it. Um, if that's not something that you feel comfortable with, you could always compare 
poems. We did a lot of that also, comparing, for example, Wyatt and Surrey. Um, we've read a lot of sonnets now. Um, and in going to Shakespeare, we're reading um, a completely different kind of sonnet, the Shakespearean sonnet, which is um, very different in form from the Petrarchan sonnets that we've looked at. Um, Shakespearean sonnets are quat three quatrains followed by a couplet, and they don't divide into eight and six the way almost all the sonnets we've looked at so far do. Um, the expectation um, of a Shakespeare sonnet, the expectation of what you're going to get when you read a Shakespeare sonnet is not that it's going to be in two more or less equal parts, but one um, somewhat longer than the other, that eight and six structure that we've looked at. Um, however, Shakespearean sonnets always end with couplets. Some Petrarchan sonnets end with couplets, some don't. Um, so you could compare Petrarchan sonnets, you can compare a Shakespearean sonnet to a Petrarchan sonnet. Just see, again, how they mean differently, how they function differently, how they do what they're doing differently. So that's another possibility. These aren't paper topics. These are just um, things you could think about. Gabriel. Uh, what setting format would you like? What wedding for format would you like? Um, 14 lines with, you mean? No, Oh, I, um, I, it's it's a bad thing about me that I don't care. <laughs> I mean, it's good for you to do it, but I don't care. It's not something that I'm going to grade you on. Just a, what? Whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, you can just say one, two, three, four, and then cite your first four um, uh, scientific papers and preprints. Sure. Um, but you shouldn't be doing research. That's another thing. Yeah. If we do a part of a longer poem, for example, one sonnet from Astrophil and Stella, how much should we allude to the piece as a whole? As, opposed to as much as you need to to say right. what's true about the sonnet. So we're looking for truth here. That's also an unusual thing in English <laughs> courses. But yes, truth. Say true things. Yeah. Yes. Um, Um, that's fine. It's, it's, if you're, I mean, it, if, if it, well, I mean, what you want to do is, is convince me yeah. that, um, uh, that this, that the way you're seeing it is the right way to see it. But look, I, you really should not be going to secondary sources and that doesn't mean go to them, but don't cite them. That would be really bad. Um, it means just don't go to secondary sources. You're a reader. These things are written to be read. You guys are readers, so read. Um, and don't go to secondary sources to um, try to get more information or more insight into what you're reading. Um, there's, this class has been plenty of secondary source, so um, that's something you should be doing. But really, just ideally, there'll be some poem that you get um, interested in. And what it means to be interested in a poem, in a way, is to think that you'll stay interested in it, that it's worth um, going over it um, several times. Same thing as what it means to download a song from iTunes. So you hear a song, you like it. Why do you download it? Why don't you just say to yourself, well, I heard that song. That was a good song. Good. Now I'm going to move on with my, my life. But you don't, because what it means to like a song is to think that you'll like it more when you listen to it again. That really is what it means, in a sense, to like a song or to really like a song, is to anticipate 
that it's going to grow on you still more. So you want to pick a poem that you will anticipate, that you can anticipate, will grow on you still more as you spend your time thinking about it, something worth the time that you're going to spend writing on it. So pick a poem or compare poems. Or what you can do, if you want, is to, um, one, one good example, but there are others, is you could read all of Delia. You could read all of The Rape of Lucrece. You could read all of Venus and Adonis. You could read um, the poems that are excerpted in the Oxford Anthology are easily findable both on the web and in the sort of Flintstones version of the web, which we call the library, where <laughs> there are these sort of e-books that have already been printed out and kind of bound. Um, and sorry, fancy. yeah, they're, they're yeah, very fancy e-books. Um, so you could read more. If you like, for example, the sections of The Rape of Lucrece that you read for today or the sections of Venus and Donis that you read today, um, both of those poems are, roughly speaking, the length of a short Shakespearean play, of a very short Shakespearean play. Um, both of those poems are somewhere around 1,500 lines long. Um, I think Venus and Adonis is slightly less, and Rape of Lucrece is slightly longer. Um, they're both really amazing poems, I think The Rape of Lucrece especially. Um, but both of them are long narrative poems of the sort that we already had a look at when we saw Hero and Leander, um, and also a little bit that we saw in, um, in reading Bits of the Fairy Queen. But um, yeah, they're not, not so different. So that's another possibility, is just read more of stuff that has been excerpted in this class. The long thing that we've read so far really is Astrophil and Stella. Now we're not going to, especially if I keep talking about this, we're not going to finish talking about Astrophil and Stella. There's plenty more to say about Astrophil and Stella. Plenty more to figure out about what's happened in the backstory. It's worth figuring that backstory out. Um, we've skipped a whole lot of backstory. We're going to look at one more song from Astrophel and Stella, but then skip the rest of the backstory. So if you want to reconstruct, which I think it's a great thing to do, a bad way to do it is to go to a secondary source, to not to name any names of people who aren't here today, but to go to Spark Notes, for example. <coughs> That's not the way to figure out the backstory of Astrophel and Stella. To read the biographies of Sidney and Penelope Rich is not the way to figure out the backstory of Astrophel and Stella. But figure out the backstory of Astrophel and Stella by figuring out what each individual sonnet is saying. Stuff happens. We've seen some of what happens. We've seen that they kiss. We've seen that um, he gets closer to her. We've seen that she gets interested in him. Um, but it's a breakup sequence. Unlike a whole lot of sonnet sequences, Astrophel and Stella is a sequence that ends with their breaking up. So what went wrong? Why do they break up? Um, why does the um, poem, why, do, why does the story go the way it does? You have to figure this out through backstory, um, figuring out what the backstory must be for these for such things to happen. Um, so that's something where you can know if you're the kind of person who's anxious about this. You can know that you're making progress as you see. Um, that you're understanding that certain things have happened that you may not have seen before, that you may not have understood before. But essentially, Astrophel and Stella tells a story that starts at the beginning and goes to the end. The sonnets, unlike Shakespeare's sonnets, the sonnets in Astrophel and Stella could not be 
offered in any other order from the order they're offered in. They tell a story, and the ordering of the sonnets tells that story. So that's another possibility. So this is just if you're anxious about um, what to write a paper on. But the main thing is, you know, just do what we're doing in class. The point of writing a paper um, in this class is for you to have an incentive or, no, let me put this differently. The point of writing a paper in this class is for you to, um, to get rewarded for, for the pleasure that you would want to take anyhow in reading these poems. But instead of thinking, oh, I'm not doing my work, I'm reading these fantastic poems, now you can be reading these fantastic poems and doing your work um, because you'll be graded um, on your readings of the poems. So that's just a really, really good thing, right? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Is there a place, like, next week we're doing done, so would you rather we not do done for this paper and save it, or? No, you can do done for this paper. It's okay. Um, and I'd say easily anything up to next week is fine. Okay. Um, yeah, and if, if that's an issue for you, for example, you would want to write about something that we haven't done yet in class, um, that's the way to do it. Um, is to just uh, skip ahead a little bit. But another way to do it, as I say, is to read all of The Rape of Lucrece, all of Venus and Adonis, um, all of Delia, whatever, um, and write about um, that, or write about lots of the stuff we haven't done in class. One more possibility is um, look for the poem called The Nymph's Reply by Sir Walter Raleigh. It's not in this book, but it's um, the reply to Marlowe's poem, Come Live With Me and Be My Love. Um, and the nymph has an answer to it. Um, and that might be something that would be of interest to you. Yeah. Also, it says it's due March 22nd, which is a Thursday. Uh-huh. Oh, I, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. So it's the 21st? Yeah, I think I forgot it was a leap year. Or something. I don't know. I have no excuse. Um, so, yeah. But there's still time. You don't have to be worried yet. I don't think you have to worry at all. Really, you've done this a million times in high school, if not in college, right? Um, yeah. Um, I have a question. You said we can like, go beyond what's accepted, but yeah. if you want to study like, like the fairy queen or something like that, what do we need to do that, or can we just look at what's in our book? You can look at what's in your book. Yeah, no, it would be probably um, an impossible use of your time to try to read the whole Fairy Queen, <laughs> or even a whole book of the Fairy Queen, although that, that's, that's barely doable as a whole book of the Fairy Queen. When I was in graduate school, um, this guy who had just started as a faculty member um, and who'd written his dissertation on Spencer um, said, let's do a Fairy Queen reading group. We'll do a book of the Fairy Queen each week. My experience is it takes about six hours to read a book of the Fairy Queen. Um, so what's your experience? Yeah. That was a and good amount of time for it. <laughs> that was a good amount of time, yes. And we did the whole Fairy Queen last spring, um, as well as all of, uh, well, all of a lot of Melton, actually, not only Paradise Lost. But how long do you think a book took you? Could you read one in six hours? Um, I mean, we had three classes a week. I did about, yeah, about six hours, two hours of reading a night. Really? Yes. Yeah, okay. And, uh, but we spent three, how many months? Two months? So we were doing fewer than a book a week. Yeah. yeah. Now, my experience in grad school was it was about 12 hours to read a book of the Fairy Queen. Um, and I just didn't know what he meant. <laughs> I thought it was ridiculous. 
I still think it takes me about t 12 hours. <coughs> then, you know, faculty always read more slowly than students. It's our job. Um, so here's, here's your paper topic. Read as slowly as a faculty member would. And then write a paper. How's that? Okay, so don't, but don't freak out. Really, try to have fun with it. Um, I don't mean have fun with it by being, being um, clever and smart-alecky. Um, I mean have fun with it by like, you know, getting deeper into these amazing poems. Okay, let us look at the eighth song, which is what we're um, looking at on Wednesday. Um, of Astrophil and Stella. I just want to notice, by the way, that the ninth song is one of the clear, is one of the clearly pastoral songs. Um, the ninth song follows the eighth song right afterwards. Um, go, my flock, go get you hence, seek a better place of feeding, where you may have some defense from the storms in my breast breeding and showers from mine eyes proceeding. Um, so he's talking to his flocks. He's a shepherd. Um, at line 16 of that song, Stella is called the fiercest shepherdess, fiercest but yet fairest ever. Um, so that's an example of pastoral. So here's the eighth song. We'll start um, again from the beginning. In a grove most rich of shade, where birds wanton music made, May then young his pied weeds showing, New perfume, perfumed with flowers fresh growing. Astrophel with Stella sweet did for mutual comfort meet. Both within themselves oppressed, but each in the other blessed. Him great harms had taught much care, her fair neck a foul yoke bare, foul yoke bare. But her sight his cares did banish. In his sight, her yoke did vanish. So when they're together, they forget all their troubles. Wept they had, alas, the while, but now tears themselves did smile, while their eyes, by love directed, interchangeably reflected. Sigh they did, but now betwixt sighs of woe were glad sighs mixed, with arms crossed, yet testifying restless rest and living, dying. Their ears hungry of each word which the dear tongue would afford, but their tongues restrained from walking till their hearts had ended talking. But when their tongues could not speak, love itself did silence break. Love did set his lips asunder, that is, Ashfeld's lips, that's what we talked about on Wednesday. Love did set his lips asunder, thus to speak in love and wonder. And so Astrophel now speaks in love and wonder, just a wonderful phrase, to speak in love and wonder. And he says to her, Stella, sovereign of my joy, fair triumpher of annoy, Stella, star of heavenly fire, Stella, lodestar of desire. Do people know what the lodestar is? The North Star. Why is it called the lodestar? You know what a lodestone? Yeah, the, the you know what a lodestone is. Yeah, yeah, a lodestone is a magnet. So the lodestar is the star that that attracts 
the magnet, the North Star, the North Star, which is um, fixed in the heavens or seems fixed in the heavens and therefore is what um, people use to orient themselves when they're doing celestial navigation. Stella, in whose shining eyes are the lights of Cupid's skies, whose beams where they once are darted, love therewith is straight imparted. So as soon as Stella looks on anything, they fall in love with her. Stella, whose voice when it speaks, senses all asunder breaks. Stella, whose voice when it singeth, angels to acquaintance bringeth, makes us acquainted of what with what angels would sound like. Stella, in whose body is writ each character of bliss, whose face all, all beauty passeth, save thy mind, which yet surpasseth. So how many of you are surprised by the thy there in 44? In a, you're surprised or you're saying something? No, thy is is thy is to thou what my is to mouth is to me um, is actually to I. Um, thy is the possessive. So um, may thy you know may thy path be gentle. Um, so so it is second person. Yeah. Right. And we know that he's talking to her because love did set his lips asunder, thus to speak in love and wonder, Stella, sovereign of my joy. But we're so used to all the sonnets that begin with Stella that we forget by the time, or it's possible to forget by the time we get to line 44, that he's talking to her, that she's right there. And after their hearts have done talking, which is after they've spooned or cuddled or gone as far as they went, um, now he speaks directly to her. Um, Stella, in whose body is writ each character of bliss, whose face all, all beauty passeth, save thy mind, which yet surpasseth. Um, your mind surpasses even your body, um, even your face. Grant, oh grant, but speech, alas, fails me, fearing on to pass. So what happens? Just dramatically, if you're playing Stella in the movie version of this, or if you're playing Astrofall rather in the movie version of this, what happens? Gabriel? He, like, spoke faster than he thought, and he started asking her for something, and then he, he stopped himself, and he's like, no, this is ridiculous, or... Yeah. Yeah, he interrupts himself. So, um, pretty neat thing to do in a song, to interrupt yourself. Grant, oh, Grant! But speech, alas, fails me fearing on to pass. So what do you think he's asking? He's about to ask and then doesn't. What do you think she's not granting him? What does desire still cry? Feed me some more. Yeah, give me some food, but you got the rhythm right. Um, it's actually not feed me some more because that would mean the desire no, is fed. No, it's feed me some more. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yes, okay. Um, <laughs> Next time I'll be accurate. That's okay. Um, all right, so oh grant, but he stops himself. But speech, alas, fails me, fearing on to pass. Grant! Oh, me, what am I saying? But no fault there is in praying, so it's okay to pray. Grant, oh dear, on knees I pray. 
knees on ground, he then did stay. So he gets on his knees in front of her. That not I, but since I love you, time and place for me may move you. So grant that if I can't move you, that the time and the place where we are can move you. Move you to what? Well, he goes on to explain. Remember, they're all alone in this very shady grove, um, most rich of shade. They're all alone there, and now he points out, never season was more fit, never room more apt for it. Smiling air allows my reason. These birds sing. Now use this season. That's what the birds are singing. Um, a little bit like the, section, the moment in book two, the fairy queen that we looked at, when the birds sing a carpe diem or carpe florum song, that is, seize the day, seize the flower. The birds are attuning themselves unto that lay. These birds sing, now use the season. This small wind, which so sweet is, see how it the leaves doth kiss. Each tree in his best attiring, sense of love to love inspiring. Love makes earth the water drink. Love to earth makes water sink. And if dumb things be so witty, witty here means um, intelligent, and if dumb things be so witty, shall a heavenly grace want pity? What's, what does that question mean? So we see love all over the world, that is, earth absorbs water. If you pour water onto earth, the earth drinks it right up, and that's a sign of love. The love of matter for matter, the love of one material thing for another. Rain falls to the earth so that earth attracts the rain from the heavens, and that's also a sign of the love of matter for matter. Newton got the idea of gravity out of um, an idea that, that essentially um, all matter is attracted to its prime mover. But um, this comes out of Neoplatonic philosophy and the idea that matter loves matter. For Newton, that became literally true. Matter is attracted to matter. That's where gravity comes from. You can trace Newton's idea back to philosophers like Nicholas of Cusa. Um, so that's what we see on Earth. We see that love makes earth the water drink, love to earth makes water sink. And if dumb things, pure matter can be so intelligent, can be so witty, shall a heavenly grace want pity? So, what does that mean? Yeah. Shouldn't we be allowed to uh, couple and have it be okay? Yeah, I mean, here you are. If, if all these earthly things are intelligent enough to love each other and to join and to mingle, Will someone as heavenly as you, someone with your heavenly grace, want, that is to say, lack pity? Um, as in, um, it, it wants, uh, or um, I, I, I am suffering from want. Um, want there means lack. So will someone, a heavenly grace like you, not show pity? There his hands, in their speech, Fain would have made tongues language plain. So, what would it say? Yeah. Uh, on the last stanza, how often does uh, Sydney compare Stella to something that's on the earth as opposed to another astronomical body? 
Um, you mean comparing her the way he, well, he's not really comparing her to Earth. What he's saying is, um, given that even Earth does this, shall an astronomical body or a heavenly thing like you fail to do it? So it's, it's the comparison is only even these low things on Earth are like that. Um, so he doesn't tend to compare her to things on Earth. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's fair. Um, but what is it that he wants from her? Well, what is, what, what is the speech of his hands? He, that fain would have made tongues language plain. What does that mean? There, there his hands and their speech in their speech, fain would have made tongues language plain. Yeah. Did he try and grab it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't think that's the way he would have put it. <laughs> um, more like he tried to stroke her or caress her is probably what he would have said. But yeah. Um, there is hands in their speech. Fain would have made tongues language plain. But her hands, his hands repelling, gave repulse all grace excelling. So she um, essentially pushes him away. Um, and, but does it in an incredibly graceful way. Um, so she repels him, she, but she gives her repulse um, all in a way that excels all grace. Then she spake. Her speech was such as not ears but heart did touch. While such wise she loved denied, as yet love she signified. So she said, no, you can't have my love. Physically, at any rate, that's what she denies. But yet she still signifies love. She still says, but still, I love you. And she calls him, the only time in the entire poem she calls him by name. Astrophel, said she, my love, cease in these effects to prove. That is, um, it's both Astrophel, my love, but also cease attempting to test my love in this way by trying to touch me. Um, if you know that um, a rule, if you know the saying that the exception proves the rule, you probably don't know what it means. Uh, so let me ask you, do you think you know what that means? Oh, well, the exception proves the rule. No, I didn't think you thought you knew. Uh, what do you think it means? When do we say that? All odd numbers are prime. Look, 3 is prime, 5 is prime, 7 is prime, 9 is, well, the exception proves the rule. 9 is, it's the exception that proves the rule. And look, see, 11 is prime, 13 is prime, just proves it. But seriously, is that a moronic thing to say, the exception proves the rule? Generally? So how do you think that got to be a saying? Yeah. It's not about logic. It's about creating philosophical attempts at logic. Okay. <laughs> it's about justification as to actually. Um, okay, it's actually that prove here means test. And it's like, it's the older meaning of prove. Um, it's a Latin term. Probo means to probe. And it would actually be better to translate the saying that in English is the exception proves the rule as the exception probes the rule. 
you find an exception, and that's a way of testing whether the rule is really a good rule or not. Um, not a rule that can be, uh, that's always true. The exception means that it's not always true. But a rule that is true enough that if you can explain the exception, um, you'll understand the rule a little bit better. Um, so you could say something like, all primes are odd. Is that true? Oh, you think so? What's the exception? So, two. Two, yeah. yeah. two is the one um, prime that isn't odd. But that, pr that probes the rule that all primes are odd, because if you say to yourself, but two isn't odd, then you can say to yourself, but what it means for something to be even is that it's divisible by two. And, it and it's certainly the case that all primes are divisible by themselves. That's um, uh, half the definition of a prime. Um, is that it's divisible by itself. The other half is and by one and by no other integer. Um, the other two-thirds. Um, so that two is even probes, tests the rule that all primes are odd. And when you realize that, yeah, you can have an even-numbered prime, but only one, that makes you understand the rule of primes a little bit better than you did before. So that's what it means to say the exception proves the rule. Um, so here what we have is Astrophel said she cease in these effects to prove my love. Cease in this way by doing these things to probe my love, to see whether I really love you. So Astrophel said she, my love, cease in these effects to prove. Now be still, yet still believe me, thy grief more than death would grieve me. Um, again, notice that like in the night and day sonnet and like in the Sistina, we looked at that repetition of words, now be still, yet still believe me. Be still, still be. Do you see that? Um, that's called a chiasmus, that patterning of language. Now be still, yet still be, leave me. Thy grief more than death would grieve me. Your grief would give me grief. If that any thought in me can taste comfort but of thee, let me, fed with hellish anguish, joyless, hopeless, endless languish. So if there was anything except you that mattered to me, that made me happy, um, then let me feel even worse anguish than I do now. If those eyes you praised be half so dear to you as me, excuse me, be half so dear as you to me, let me home return stark blinded of those eyes and blinder minded. So you're the most important thing in the world to me. If to secret of my heart I do any wish impart where thou art not foremost placed, be both wish and I defaced. If you're not the most first person I pray for, first person I bless, the first person that I have any wishes for. If more may be said, I say, all my bliss in thee I lay. If thou love, my love content thee. For all love, all faith is meant thee. So if you really care about my love, then don't worry about having sex with me. 
if it's love that you care about, you have all my love. If it's sex that you care about, that's a totally different kettle of fish because she's going to stay true to Rich, at least at this point. If thou love, my love content thee. If you love, let my love content you. For all love, all faith is meant thee. Trust me while I thee deny. In myself the smart I try. Again, that's I feel it. I feel the pain of denying you too. It's hard on me. Tyrant honor doth thus use thee. So it's honor that's doing it, not me. Stella, self might not refuse thee. If it were just me rather than the honorable and right thing to do, I wouldn't refuse you. Therefore, dear, this no more move, lest though I leave not thy love, which too deep in me is framed, I should blush when thou art named. So I'll always love you, but if you keep pushing me, um, I'm just going to, I'll continue to love you, but I'm not going to spend any time with you and just blush even to hear your name. So that's as far as, as much as he's going to get here. And then she leaves. Therewithal, away she went, leaving him so passion-rent with what she had done and spoken, that therewith my song is broken. So here my song ends. So what's surprising? Yeah. That there's a he that's separate from my. Yeah. Um, or maybe the be a better way to put it would be the very opposite, that suddenly the he turns into a my. That is that all the way through this, it's been a third-person story, a third-person narrative. Astroville and Stella are together, and Love opens his lips, and here's what he says, and here's how she responds. And then she left there with all the way she went, leaving him so passion-rent with what she had done and spoken that therewith my song is broken. So when's it broken? We're going to see a, um, a Herbert poem, a poem called Denial, um, in which he describes his own song as, as broken. It, it goes, when my devotion could not pierce thy silent ears, then was my heart broken, as was my verse. And um, that moment when his verse is broken as well as his heart broken um, is a moment um, in which the poem starts falling apart, as you'll see when we do it. Um, then was my heart broken, as was my verse. My mind was full of fears and disorder, is how that goes. So it demonstrates, his poem demonstrates how it's broken. Then was my heart, he's writing a verse in which he says, my, then was my heart broken, as was my verse. And it is broken. Um, where's the breaking here? Where do we see it broken? You could say, oh, just the song comes to an end, that therewith my song is broken. But I think there's more than that going on here. Yeah? Well, it's also like, at this, you know, it's sort of like the, the happy la-di-da, oh, I can totally just love her and everything's fine. Yeah. His bubble pops. Yeah. His bubble pops, um, and... The song ends and all the happiness of, you know, there we were in this grove, most rich of shade, and it was all wonderful, and then eh, it's gone. It's over. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, Gabriel. I want to say the song really starts to fall apart four stanzas before the end. Uh huh. Because we have a. It, it starts, if more may be said, I say. Uh huh. in thee I like. If thou love, my love content thee. For all love, all faith is immense thee. The repetition of thee kind of throws off the rhyming structure. And it's. I think he's trying to show his, um, his his emotional state that he's kind of unraveling at this point in time because his song's starting to unravel. And if you take out the V, you have a complete rhyme if content and men. Yeah. And same with the next stanza. It's use the and refuse the. Uh-huh. It's, his rhyming structure's thrown off, but he still could have a perfect rhyme there. Do you, do you not f- hear that or feel that as rhyming, content thee and men thee, or use thee and refuse thee? It does rhyme, but at the same time, I'm looking at it and I'm like, it's still off. It just registers in my mind that there's something going on here that shouldn't be going on in the rest of the poem. Okay, okay. Um, yeah. But he plays with perspective long before the ending. In uh, lines 11 and 12, it's, But her sight, his cares did vanish. In his sight, her yoke did vanish. Uh-huh. Those are not equal phrases. Yeah. Because it means that in his sight, by his own vision... Her yoke vanishes. Not that when she is beheld by him, she feels that. Yeah. That's still all his interpretation. And so when she responds, her yoke hasn't been lifted. She still feels it. He's the only one who's decided it wasn't there anymore. Okay, so I think what you're seeing here and saying here um, is that that moment which looks like parallelism, that is, there the two of them were, Astrophel with Stella's suite did for mutual comfort meet, both within themselves oppressed, but each in the other blessed, and then more balancing, like the night and day sonnet. Um, Him great harms had taught much care, her fair neck a foul yoke bare, but her sight his cares did vanish, in his sight, her yoke did vanish. Suddenly, we realize we're getting the male perspective. What looked like it was almost perfectly balanced turns out not to be as balanced as it seems. It's still from Astrophel's point of view rather than from a neutral point of view. Um, and that's clearly what happens at the very end. She leaves. He's there. There with all away she went. Not um, something like there with all away she went feeling then so passion-rent with what he had done and spoken um, that she was glad she'd left a token. I don't know. Um, but no, it's, it's certainly subtly but certainly from his point of view. Um, but I think I'm asking a really simple question, which in a way I already answered, or, or people already answered, but it's still worth answering Giving, giving the answer to this question, which is, um, where does the poem break frame? Yeah, yeah. When the last stanza, when he can't sing about it like it's other people. Anymore. Yeah, yeah. It, there's no way to make this line right which in a way is the point. It could be, you couldn't have it, therewithal away she went, leaving him so passion-rent with what she had done and spoken that therewith his song was broken, because he wasn't singing. So it has to be the speaker of the poem who's singing, that therewith my song is broken. Um, but the speaker of the poem turns out to be, therefore turns out to be Astrophel. 
So what he's basically saying is, I got it together. I held it up as a third-person song. Um, I described this amazing time. Um, again, this is psychologically just so delicate what Sidney is able to do in his poetry. But again, you all will have had the experience of imagining the narration of some privileged moment in your life, um, often an erotic moment. That time when you and that person had that perfect day. And when we do that kind of remembering, usually right afterwards, like, God, that was amazing. Um, you'll do that kind of remembering in the third person. That is not what we did, but what they did. Um, that's part of what makes it perfect, is that you can stand outside yourself and be one of the two people, let's say, who did that. Um, and that's part of its sense of, of just a privilege within time, a privileged moment within time, a sense within time of this thing that was just right. And so that's what he's doing in this song, is that Asterfell and Stella are all alone in this grove most rich of shade, and their lives both stink. But here's a moment when it was all lifted, when they felt as though they had transcended things. Those of you who know Dunn's poem, The Ecstasy, know that he does something, um, he's describing a similar sort of situation in The Ecstasy. It's another poem where the two lovers don't speak to each other. They don't have to speak to each other. Um, the word ecstasy literally means, does anyone know what it means? Ecstasis, what ecstasy means literally? Yeah, to stand outside yourself. That's what it means to be ecstatic. It's to transcend your own self and to be outside um, and, and beyond and exalted. So that's what the third person gives you here is something like that. That is, this was true. This really happened. And a way to describe something that's really happened. It's amazing, but it really happens. And a way to capture that tonally and psychologically is to put it in the third person, to give it a third person omniscient narrator. Because the thing about omniscient narrators is they know. That's what it means, what omniscience means, to know everything. So if your story is told in the third person, um, that's wonderful. And if that's what the story is that Asterfell and Stella Sweet did for mutual comfort meet. Then it's not, oh, I was in love with Stella and we had this kind of awkward time, but you know, I think she loved me back. Um, and um, I, was, I was really, really happy, although now I'm a little bit paranoid about it. Um, but no, that was just perfect. That was great. That moment, that moment of absolute mutuality. And as I say, it's part of a kind of descriptive psychology that we want to think of that described in the third person. If you're a writer, you'll want to write it in the third person. Um, lots of writers, as you know, are told in creative writing classes, but have been told in creative writing classes since the beginning of time to write about their own experiences. And often what that means is that you get a lot of first person writing. Um, but sometimes the best when you're really happy, when you're really happy, how often is that? But when you're really happy, 
it's sometimes the case that you'll find yourself wanting to write about that experience in the third person, that that can be a sign of it, that you can do it in the third person. Um, why do it in the third person? Partly for the reason that Leah is, is pointing us to, which is that that allows you also to describe yourself from the other person's point of view, because the omniscient third person narrator knows both points of view. And you don't have to think, well, I think what she thought about me was this, or she looked like she was interested. It was like, yeah, you were right there with the other person, just like that, right there. And that is what Sydney is describing. So Astrophel describes this moment, or Sydney describes this moment between Astrophel and Stella, a moment of absolute privilege, which then ends. Therewithal, away she went. And now it's not the two of them anymore, leaving him so passion rent with what she had done and spoken that therewith my song is broken. And so the third person narrator either is still the third person narrator but made sad by what's happened. What we could say is the narrative can no longer sustain its third person quality. Maybe we shouldn't even talk about the narrator, but talk about the narrative can no longer sustain its third person quality. So the song is broken with the word my. That's what breaks the song. Leaving him so passion rent with what she had done and spoken that therewith my song is broken. That third person description breaks there on the word my, and it stops being third person. And that breaking is the breaking of the song. So it's a really sad moment, uh, this moment when the song comes to an end, when the song is broken off but also broken. Um, if you go to the next sonnet, Sonnet 87, the first line is quite striking. It's the next thing that happens, you could say. When I was forced from Stella, ever dear, Stella, food of my thoughts, heart of my heart, Stella, whose eyes make all my tempests clear by iron law, clear by iron laws of duty to depart, alas, I found that she with me did smart. I saw the tears did in her eyes appear. I saw that sighs her sweetest lips did part, and her sad words, my saddest sense did hear. For me, I wept to see pearls scattered so. I sighed her sighs and wailed for her woe. Yet swam in joy such love in her was seen. Thus, while the effect most bitter was to me, and nothing than the cause more sweet could be, I had been vexed, if vexed I had not been. So here we're getting a little plot, which is that some iron law of duty is forcing him to depart. What we're going to find out is um, it's not his duty not to sleep with a married woman. It's um, because clearly that means nothing to him. Um, it's that he's, got, he's um, on some diplomatic mission. Um, the iron laws of duty are duty to his queen and duty to the court and duty to um, his, his um, uh, sworn position um, as, as an upholder of the commonwealth, of the polity. 
Um, and so these are what begin the what are called the absent sonnets when um, Astrophel is absent from Stella. But that kind of starts with her leaving after the song, and now he has to leave. So this is the introduction, the psychological introduction of separation between them and the sorrows, but also the strange joys of that separation. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, all right, I think that's uh, all we'll get to do with Astrophel and Stella. Um, but I thought it was really worth it because it's both um, an amazing story, um, amazingly told, amazing as a story, not necessarily the story it tells isn't that amazing, but um, the way it tells the oldest story in the world, um, love and loss, is amazing. And it's psychologically really acute. Um, in something like the way that um, Wyatt was, except Wyatt isn't telling a story. Wyatt's sonnets are individual sonnets, whereas Sidney is telling a whole long narrative. Um, you've now read a whole lot of Shakespeare's sonnets. How do they compare? How would you compare them? Not how they compare, oh, well, you know, I really kind of liked Shakespeare better. That's not what I mean. Um, how would you compare them? What's what are the similarities and differences? Yeah, I mean, or more generally, but yeah, you can start with Sydney particularly, Barbara. Well, they do have a story, not as much detail, I would say, uh -huh. as Astral and Cell, where it's telling a series of events, but it is about like the relationship. Him and the, the woman, and also the other, other um, writer. Uh huh. Okay, so it is. It's about relationships and relationships that maybe we can progressively feel as getting more real. Um, the people involved seem to be getting more real in various ways, and you can you can figure out backstory. Um, the, it's not, it's hotly argued whether Shakespeare's sonnets are in um, the order he wanted them <coughs> to be in, or indeed whether there is any order to them. It's clear in Shakespearean sonnets that some of the sonnets are in order. There are certainly suborders of sonnets where one sonnet picks up from the one before it. Um, but the question um, whether the sonnets themselves um, make an order um, is, is something that um, some people think they do and some people think they don't. Um, there have been attempts to reorder them, but not convincing ones. Um, so they don't seem to be quite as novelistic as a whole as Astrophil and Stella, although they have those novelistic moments. Um, what about his individual sonnets? Can Sydney hold a candle to Shakespeare? Can Shakespeare hold a candle to Sydney? Yeah. Well, we talked a lot last class about how Sydney went out of his way to make it look like he hadn't been going out of his way. Uh huh. Um, and in Shakespeare, you sense less of that construction and more like he's showing off. Uh huh. He knows he can. Uh huh. Okay, what's an example? I don't know that I could pick out anyone particularly. It's just overall, like, 
when when one is reading Astrophil and Stella, there's a sense of, of it's not casual, but it's a, there's a sense of storytelling. Whereas here, every phrase is really specifically chosen for maximum effect, effectiveness and mass, maximum aesthetic impact. Uh huh. So it's it's you know you, you can tell that he worked hard. <laughs> okay. Good. Um, yeah, Tony. Uh huh. Where he he says I don't I don't mess with this form because it's the most effective. It's the most effective way of saying what I want to say. Okay. Good. Yeah. He said, "Yeah. So what? So what? I only do sonnets. I'm awesome at sonnets." Yeah. Well, but he's also saying, "No, it's you. Um, I'm I'm. It's you're awesome for sonnets." That is, why is my verse so barren of new pride, so far from variation or quick change? Why, with the time, do I not glance aside to newfound methods and to compound strange? So there is Shakespeare describing um, what his fellow poets are writing. Um, they're writing with newfound methods and compounds strange. Why write I still all one ever the same and keep invention in a noted weed? that every word doth almost tell my name, showing their birth and where they did proceed. So why do I write the same, in the same style over and over again? Um, noted weed there means well-known um, clothing. Um, and uh, so why do I always clothe my thoughts in exactly the same form so people can just glance at one of my sonnets and say, oh, that's a Shakespeare sonnet. Um, assuming they know that it's Shakespeare um, when he's first writing them. And here's his answer. Oh, no, sweet love, I always write of you. And you and love are still my argument. So all my best is dressing old words new, spending again what is already spent. For as the sun is daily new and old, so is my love still telling what is told. So why are you shaking your head in admiration? Yeah. Yeah, say more. Admire it more length. Words fail. They really do. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. That's good. You admired it very good length. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. Um, there's a much more varied comparison that, that Shakespeare makes than as opposed to what Sidney makes. Sidney is more, as I was saying before, he's more celestial. It's more how great she is. And he's, Stella is, he's comparing Stella to different parts of her own body or to celestial bodies, whereas with Shakespeare, he's comparing this woman to more mundane, earthly type things, which we find beautiful and we can relate to better. Uh huh. So, what's an example? Like, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Or that's a perfect example. It's a summer's day. Everyone knows what a summer's day. Is. Uh huh. We don't know what shade feels like. Or three seventy-three. We know we can 
you know what clock time is. A clock is just a simple object that everyone has that you can look up and see what time it is. But there's no clock that's sitting in kitchens because that's too mundane to compare cell it to. Uh-huh. Okay, good. Yeah. Or, um, I was thinking about the, it's on page 585, the weird toy like to my bed. Uh-huh. Um, but the, the final couplet is, Lo, thus by day my limbs, by night my mind, for the end of myself, no quiet find. Because we were talking about that, the, it's not a sestina, but everything is night and day and day and night, right. and night and then day again. Yes. And he manages to capture that in one couplet at the end of a sonnet. Uh-huh. He doesn't need an entire poem. Yeah. <laughs> No, yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think that he's, there's a sense in which what he's doing is compressing into individual sonnets um, the whole um, experience within one sonnet. Um, partly the Shakespearean form, that is three quatrains and a couplet, um, allows for that more than the Petrarchan form. Um, that is, he, there's a sense in which you could say he could say three things and then a summing up thing. Three events can occur um, in a sonnet, or three movements can occur. Whereas in Petra where, whereas a Petrarchan sonnet tends to force you to two movements, the octet and the sestet. Um, the innovation in Shakespeare um, to really divide things into three plus a couplet um, and to really have a couplet at the end of every of every sonnet, which you don't have at the end of every um, Petrarchan or Sidneyan or Spenserian um, sonnet. Actually, I think you do in, Sp in Spenserian sonnets. Um, but a couplet really will always have that kind of, and this is the last thing that I'm saying, and I'm saying it therefore very elegantly, um, feel about it. Um, but yeah, he does, he does sort of tell stories in them. Um, so here's one other possible um, topic, if you want, for Astrophil and Stella, if you want a paper topic, is we talked about this a little bit, but now think about it seriously. Um, assume that some of Astrophil and Stella was written by Sidney, not by Astrophil, but by Sidney, as um, the relationship was going on. Um, that's not necessarily true, and you don't necessarily have to assume that, but I think it's an okay thing to assume. Um, what do you think the order that he wrote the sonnets in was? That is to say that um, there comes a time in your life as a writer when you decide you're going to describe what happened. Um, but a lot of stuff has, has already ha had to have happened when you do that. Take Astrophil and Stella as a fictional reconstruction. That is... Um, he writes it or decides to produce a sonnet sequence when the thing that it's a sequence about is over. Um, doesn't mean he hasn't written sonnets while it's occurring, but it means that the decision on the sequence, on telling the story as a whole, with a beginning, a middle, and an end, is a decision he makes when it's all over. Um, reconstruct and argue for your reconstruction of what parts were written when. Um, and obviously what I'm suggesting is they're not written in anything like the order that they're presented in. Um, so if you could do that, um, you'd have a really good paper topic if you could make a good argument for that. I think it'd be much harder to do that for Shakespeare. That is say, as I say, people have tried to reconstruct a different order for the sonnets, but there's a way in which the sonnets, each sonnet just feels so much about what it's about. 
that it's really hard to say, oh, this sonnet is simply um, an element in a story, a bridge from one situation to the next situation, um, a situation that occurs and that drives the action that will happen next. It's really hard to say that in sh with Shakespeare's sonnets because each sonnet has this standalone quality about it. And um, that's, I think that's another way of saying what you guys are saying. Um, so which do you prefer? I mean, so far people are, are clearly saying Shakespeare, but um, is there something to be said about Sidney's sort of novelistic approach? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Um, variation within sonnets or between sonnets? Within sonnets also. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, say more about that. What? How, Uh huh. Because I mean, you could you could recite these to somebody, but you couldn't you couldn't just say them. Whereas, especially in like Astrophil and Stella, you could I could see Astrophil saying that out loud to Stella. Okay. Yeah, that's nice. That's really good. Um, there may be a sense in which in Shakespeare you don't really get. Um, there is one sonnet, but it's not in here. Um, in which the dark lady actually speaks. Um, she begins with the words, I hate. Um, and Shakespeare freaks out. Um, and it's, it's, it's probably a, a kind of tip of the hat to O grammar rules. Um, it's, uh, she begins, she's talking to him and she says, I hate, and then he freaks out for 13 and a half lines, or for 13 lines. What's going to follow that word hate? Oh, no, I'm really worrying about it. Um, but then finally, um, hate itself from hate withdrew because she follows up, I hate not you. Um, <laughs> Wait, say that again? It's um, from Dr. Horrible sing along. Yeah. He's, he's reading off, um, he's, I hate the homeless. This problem that yeah. plagues the city. Yeah, okay. It's like super hot also. Um, it says, do people know who super hot is? Uh, you just Google him. Um, it's super, S-U-P-A, hot fire. Um, that's what to Google. Just amazing set of YouTubes. But at one of them, he's, he's, he's having a rap war with some real rappers. Um, and at one point, has his posse is cheering him. He says... I never shower. And then his posse is going, oh, whoa, that's rank, man. Um, long pause. And he says, without my loofah. Um, so, yeah, it's the same thing. It all goes back to Shakespeare. <laughs> I hate not you. Um, or Doc, Doc Horrible, yeah. Um, but that's pretty much the only time anyone else speaks in, sh in a Shakespearean sonnet. Um, mainly it's how he feels and what's 
happening with him. On the other hand, they feel really anguished. You, they, there's a, one question is always that question of the breaking of the song. That is, there's the, um, there's the um, whatever psychological delicacy you get through form and through the capacities of form. But that kind of psychological delicacy always seems at odds with the, de with the depth that you get through substance and through the difficulties of substance. And Sidney and Shakespeare can stand for those two different dimensions, I think, of, um, of psychological expression. Yeah. Um, I know in Astrothorne and Stella, we're not supposed to assume that it's, or he doesn't want us to assume that it's Sidney that's speaking. But for these sonnets, are we supposed to assume that Shakespeare is the one that's trying to say these things? Or is, the, is each little sonnet about a different Character because one of them is really interesting. Which, one of them? Okay, which <laughs> well, one? In, in, in terms of like what the perspective is. Okay, yeah, which one? 377. Okay, yeah. Which, which sounds like he's basically saying, I have a huge man crush on you, I wish you were a girl. Yes, it is what he's saying. Um, and so is that a character or is that like. No, that's him. Okay. All right, I so. Find that really interesting as like a person that like. You all right, so basically, here's the conventional and, and um, almost certainly close to true um, account of the sonnets, that um, the first 20, and this one is number 20, um, the one that's number 377 here, uh, the first 20 sonnets are Shakespeare saying to a young man, um, there's a lot of debate as to who he is, but he's an aristocrat, that much we know. Um, if you've read Henry IV, the Henry IV plays, you know, plays with Hal and Falstaff. Um, the relationship between Falstaff and Hal is not unlike the relationship between Shakespeare and the young man in those 126 sonnets, um, except that Shakespeare is um, much more self-aware than Falstaff is. But their relationship is not, is not unlike that relationship. Um, so the... Um, in the, in the first 20 of those sonnets to the young man, um, they take the form of and the, of, and the general sort of backstory is, Shakespeare, can you talk some sense into this guy? He should really get married and have kids. You know, I really want grandchildren, um, but he's spending all his time being a playboy. Try to talk some sense into him. So Shakespeare writes some sonnets saying, you know, you're young now, but not for long and um, you're really good looking, and you obviously like the fact that you're really good looking, but if you like the way you look, the only chance you have of preserving those looks is by having a kid who looks like you. Um, so Shakespeare writes those sonnets, and the first, they, they tend to be conventional. Um, but here it does feel like he's trying to write a story, because then what happens is um, he starts getting more and more serious about how good looking the young man is. Um, and there's still plausible deniability, but it gets pretty undeniable when you get to 377. A woman's face with nature's own hand painted hast thou. So um, you're really pretty. Um, the master mistress of my passion. And of course, master there is an adjective, meaning the um, preeminent mistress of my passion, so still treating that as a female face. But the word master is a, is a masculine word. Um, master versus mistress in, um, is, is the gendered 
um, uh, equivalent. Um, a woman's gentle heart, but not acquainted with shifting change as this false women's fashion. So you've got everything, everything good about women, you got that. But you know that bad stuff where they just aren't true to people? That part isn't, you don't have. Um, an eye more bright than theirs, less false in rolling, gilding the object whereupon it gazeth. So everything you look at, um, you gild, it's like your eye is covering it with golden light. A man in hue, all hues in his controlling. So that's a much discussed line, and um, some people think it might be a pun on the young man's name, which would then be hues. Um, a man in hue, all hues in his controlling, which steals men's eyes and women's souls amazeth. And for a woman, that wert thou first created. So you're so beautiful, it was obvious that you were first created as a woman, but then nature fell in love with you. Nature herself created you and said, oh man, this is one beautiful, beautiful person. Um, and so nature had homoerotic feelings towards you, but nature being nature could um, transmogrify them so that they fit within the regime of heteronormativity. Um, that's essentially what Shakespeare is saying. Um, not as eloquently as I've just put it. But, um, so, and for a woman wert thou first created till nature, as she wrought thee, fell a doting. And by addition me of the defeated. Um, by adding one thing to my purpose, nothing. Um, so all nature had to do to tweak you so that you weren't a woman was to add one thing, um, which unfortunately was something that I wasn't interested in. So he's claiming here <laughs> early on. Yeah. Um, wouldn't it be fun if you were female? Um, and by addition, me of thee defeated by adding one thing to my purpose, nothing. But since she pricked thee out for women's pleasure, um, so she did, so the way she, um, is there a note on pricked here? Um, selected you and gave you a penis. Um, I think it's more than selected you. I think it, ha it has something to do with patterns and sewing that is pricking you out, that is, um, the way you were finally formed was for women's pleasure. So the pun is, um, you were formed for women's pleasure, but of course you were also pricked. Um, unfortunately for me, you were pricked out for women's pleasure. Since that's true, mine be thy love and thy love's use, their treasure. So as long as you love me, I understand that they're the ones who are going to get to have sex with you, but as long as you love me, that's fine. Notice this is a little bit like the Astrophel and Stella situation. That is, as long as you love me, for a while at least I'll be happy, even though you're having sex with Rich, um, until desire cries out, give me some food. Actually, it turns out that love isn't enough. Um, but what's interesting, one of the things that's interesting here is um, the idea that um, it's okay for him to um, have sex with other people as long as um, 
Shakespeare knows that Shakespeare's the one that he loves. Later on, what's going to happen, I mean, it's, it's actually very strange, and there is a little bit of a sequence here, is that the young, so the, so the first 126 sonnets are conventionally said to be spoken to the young man. Um, and then the last, uh, f what is it, 38, um, are addressed to the person called the Dark Lady. Um, called the Dark Lady because she has dark hair. Um, and at one point, Shakespeare says, everyone says, you know, that light-haired women are the most beautiful. You're a dark-haired woman, but you're more beautiful than anyone. Um, however, he gets really unhappy when the young man and the dark lady start getting together. Um, and he's the one who's left out. Um, and notice the hypocrisy. He wants you to notice the hypocrisy of this. Basically, he's having sex with both of them, and he thinks that's fine. Um, but when they start having sex with each other, he thinks they're both betraying him. Um, and you can't really make that a, consi a morally consistent attitude. Um, it's like um, polyamorism for me, but not for you, um, is, is essentially the position. But he knows that that's the position he's taking. And part of what is great about the sonnets is after, after this one, after Sonnet 20, there's extraordinary honesty in his expression of how he feels. He doesn't try to justify how he feels. Um, he does say how strongly he feels. And um, Shakespeare, you know, one of the things that Shakespeare and Wyatt and Sidney share is um, a really strong commitment to an accurate description of the um, strange and um, unpleasant and inconsistent um, and unflattering um, um, aspects of the person in love. Um, and they really want to see it and think it and say it right. Um, and they do. And that's part of, I mean, they say different things, different, different aspects of it, but they do say it right. And that's really pretty powerful. Okay, um, for Wednesday, one of the things that I think, well, we'll look at Nash's great songs from Summer's Last Will and Testament, which is part of the, those three poems that were part of the reading for this week. Um, and I think it'd be worthwhile thinking a little bit about songs. Um, just a little bit. We'll see where that goes. Um, okay, see you guys on Wednesday.